Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. Hello, my name is Piper. I use she, her pronouns um, and I'm calling in this evening from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people. Um, So we'd just like to begin by acknowledging um, their elders past, present and emerging. And yes, I am this year's PLN president. Um, and for those of you who don't know much about the club, um, we are a network of people, um, mostly students um, and professionals from within the legal sphere, as well as broader systems of justice, um, who are really passionate about social and environmental justice within the law. Um, and we're yeah, really passionate about bringing these um, issues to the forefront of our um, education experience and making sure that people can leave their university degrees um, really um, interested in some of these um, fantastic opportunities um, and really, really important issues um, and where we would love to have you part of the network. And with that, I think I might pass back to Nicole. Yep, perfect. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our wonderful speakers. Laura John, Lee Ubank, and Bianca Fahler. Would you each like to tell us briefly just a bit about yourself and maybe your career trajectory so far? Bianca speaking, I'll start just to break the ice. Hi everyone, as you know, I'm Bianca, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm zooming in from Wurundjeri country. So um, my career trajectory has been a bit odd. Um, at the moment, I'm the Human Rights Advocacy Coordinator at the Youth Disability Advocacy Service. So we provide advocacy representation for disabled um, young people who are 12 to 25 years old. And that could be anything from like appearing at AAT tribunal hearings, VCAT tribunal hearings, um, representing people in discrimination law matters, um, anything where there's a human rights case and a disabled young people, young person is involved, we can assist with that. Um, in my spare time, I'm also, um, I volunteer with Amnesty International, so I'm a co-convener with Amnesty's Victorian Refugee Rights Network. Um, in a previous life, I was a lawyer. I specialised in child protection law, disability law and all things human rights. And before that, I was an investigator and conciliator at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Um, that's a bit about me. Um, I think I'll pass it over to Laura. Hi there, thanks for kicking us off, Bianca. Um, I am Laura, I'm, I'm dialing in from the Boonarang lands. Um, in terms of my career trajectory, um, I find it always really interesting to reflect on because I was definitely one of those law students who had a five, 10, 15, 20 year plan. Um, that hasn't quite eventuated for me, uh, but it has really helped kind of shape some of the different experiences that I've had. I actually started my career as a government lawyer I worked at Australian Government Solicitor in Canberra. So I did my time there and I was told, um, if you don't escape before five years, you're locked in for life. So I got out at about four years, 11 months, um, escaped back to Melbourne. In Melbourne, um, I've been working with refugee organisations. So I currently work as a senior solicitor with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. We provide legal assistance to people seeking asylum and refugees in Australia um, throughout the entire protection visa application process. And as you probably would have seen in the media, there is a lot of legal work to be done there, both in terms of individual advocacy, which we do a lot of, um, 
as well as systemic law reform, because um, the laws in this area really uh, don't align with my values and I think a lot of the values of, of the Australian people. So keen to get into that with you guys a bit later, um, but that's just a snapshot of my career this far. Thanks, Laura. G'day everyone, my name's Lee Eubank and I'm, um, I'm a grassroots campaigner at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a legal eagle. Um, that's not my background. Um, I guess the intersection between, you know, what you're working on is often, you know, I'm part of the kind of community and political dynamics that might see, you know, legislation, um, you know, created and written and passed and enter law. Um, or we might, might be using existing laws to drive progress on climate change and other social justice issues. Um, I think in terms of like my career trajectory, I'd probably put it more like a life trajectory. Um, I had, you know, a political awakening, you know, in the years after September 11 and the war on terror, the illegal war in Iraq. Um, and at the same time, it really emerged to me um, that, you know, when it comes to our environment, climate change was the number one big issue of our time. So I, I kind of decided to do, devote myself to that issue and trying to drive progress where, wherever possible. Um, various pathways led me to a, a little, uh, little building on Smith Street in Collingwood that some of you might know, Friends of the Earth. Um, you know, this organization has been working on environmental justice, environmental protection in Australia since 1974. It initially got started in Victoria uh, when a community decided to resist a nuclear power plant from being built on French Island. And, you know, that kind of uh, established the DNA of our organisation, which is community-driven campaigns, uh, very, uh, you know, place-based activism. And, um, you know, I've been around Friends of the Earth Melbourne for about 10 years now in the climate movement for a little longer than that, and have worked on campaigns to repeal uh, uh, anti-wind farm laws to get a renewable energy target enshrined into law in Victoria, uh, you know, the passage of the Climate Change Act and a whole bunch of other things. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful to be here and look forward to the conversation. Sort of leading off of this, we want to know how you all envisioned your careers when you started at university and whether you were like interested in social justice issues or if that's something that came later. Uh, well, let me just refer to my 20-year plan spreadsheet, colour-coordinated, of course. Um, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. <laughs> I um, had an interest in social justice, I think, from kind of a young age. I come from a Sri Lankan migrant background, so I was always kind of quite aware of some of those issues of justice that affected my extended family um, offshore and then also kind of onshore in Australia. Uh, I found Monash Law to be such a, a brilliant breeding ground um, for social justice initiatives. So while I was studying, um, I was very involved with the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law, was able to do internships with them, their in-house internship and also their overseas internships. Um, so I did a stint with Human Rights First um, in New York, which was incredible, working with asylum seekers, and that really cemented for me that this was going to be an area of law that I was really um, keen, to, keen to work in. But interestingly, when I, when I finished um, university, I didn't go straight into that field because it was 
I guess important to me to get some practice experience um, as a lawyer, which is why I went to AGS, um, which was a great place in which to learn technical legal skills and analysis and be involved in um, some really high profile um, public interest matters, not necessarily on the side that I always wanted to be on, which was part of the reason why I kind of felt like it was time for me to go back to my human rights roots um, a few years ago and, and come back to Melbourne and be immersed in, in that community. Um, so I think that I've always had that interest in social justice, but how that manifested has been quite different throughout my career and probably will be in the years to come. I'll go next. Um, so my story is a bit um, a bit funny to be honest, but I'm happy to share it with all, with all of you. Maybe it will inspire you along the way. So I remember coming out of a contracts law lecture and thinking, oh my gosh, why did I enroll in this degree? It is so boring. I like, what am I going to do with my life when I finish? And then I think someone was watching over me as I was having those thoughts because then I, I remember the walk from the Menzies building down to the law building. And then I somehow, I must have been waiting for another treat or something because I was in the basement. It was one of those, um, you know how they have, I don't know if they still have it because I graduated 100 years ago. Um, but they had, they used to have like a board with all these flyers of volunteer opportunities. And then I saw um, there was a flyer, um, volunteer with Amnesty, become an activist, rah, rah, rah. So I thought, oh, I don't really know anything about Amnesty, but this human rights thing, I think I'll apply. So I applied, I got an interview. And then I found it super inspiring. So I think I might've been like second year law. Um, but then, uh, and then I, um, it was really good to be at Monash because all the students that you're surrounded with, I don't know why, but everyone has this super like inspiring attitude. Well, that's what I found when I was there. So um, I felt like there was this ongoing stress of, um, you know, what are you doing in your free time? Are you volunteering? Have you applied for internships? Like everyone was very organized. Um, so because of that, I remember I um, signed up to a couple of internships. So there was um, a program going, I can't remember what it was called. It might've been called the Aurora Project that Monash was running. Um, and they offered like internships through that. So I, was, I managed to get an internship policy internship at the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission, which was amazing. It was really, really interesting. Um, and then after that, um, I signed up for an internship in South Africa. It was a paid internship at the Projects Abroad Human Rights Office. But then when I graduated, I don't know what I did there, why I did this, but um, it must have been, I, I blame my parents, like peer pressure from the parents who were always like, you've got to be a corporate lawyer. How are you going to pay the bills if you go into this human rights, social justice thing? Rah, rah, rah. So I think I'll blame my mum for that one. I think it, she may have got the better of me. So when I graduated, I got into um, a pretty good corporate firm and um, I the job was in Sydney, so I didn't know anyone in Sydney and I went over there, um, signed a lease. I found an apartment within two days, signed a lease, and then within three days of working in this job and just reading terms and conditions all day, I remember saying to my boss, thank you, but no, thank you. I think this isn't for me. And he was like, Bianca, are you sure? Like, how about you think about it to the end of the week? Because people like try really hard to get these jobs. And back then, like, I think there was an estimate, like 50% of law students, law graduates weren't getting practicing roles. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to waste your time. So I quit and I crossed the road. And um, 
the look on my face must have been like I'd seen a ghost or something because I was like oh my god I'm in this city that I don't know anyone I've signed this lease how am I going to pay my rent more um and, and more than that, what am I going to tell my parents? They've told everyone in Melbourne that, oh, my daughter, she's going to be this hotshot corporate lawyer, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, my gosh, how embarrassing. So I didn't tell my parents. Um, they thought I was working in this corporate firm for I don't know how long, maybe the whole summer. Um, I kept this act up. Um, so anyway, I crossed the road and I walked into this dress shop. And, you know, those clothing stores where dresses are like $7,000 and no one can afford them. It was one of those shops. There was no one in there. And the lady in there, um, she she must have thought that, like, it must have been obvious that I was quite stressed. So she was like, "Hannah, are you okay? And I was like, actually, no. So I've just moved from Melbourne and I've told this, I tell this random stranger my whole life story. I've applied for this job and it's been three days and I've quit. And I don't know what to tell anyone. And she was like, how about you have a, a seat? So it was one of those fancy shops where they have like the coffee table, the armchairs. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, there's been no one here all day. Like you'll be entertaining me. So I was like, okay. So I told her everything. And she was like, how about you work here over the summer until you can find a job that you like? And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah. And I was thinking, how am I going to afford these, like these dresses in this store? Like everything I owned was like $20 or something. Um, and she was like, don't worry, we, you know, there's an allowance, blah, blah, blah. So she was so lovely. So I worked in that store until I could find a job. And then I segued, segued back into like the social justice field. And I got my first job um, with the New South Wales Ombudsman in the employment related child protection division. So yeah, um, if there's any lesson in that, I would say like always listen to your gut and stay with what you're passionate about and don't listen to anyone. Like it's not true. Like social justice jobs can pay the bills. Um, yeah, I think I've said enough there. Over to you, Lee. God, that is such an enthralling story. That was awesome. Um, I don't I don't know how I'm going to follow that one. Um, look, I guess um, originally you know I, I you know the probability of me going to university was was fairly low um i didn't really do very well at high school but ended up getting into um rmit university in the city um doing a social science environment degree um and i i think that's where i kind of developed um you know ideas about how we can deal with this big issue climate change um but you know with that um I guess a little bit of a working class kind of sensibility um, from where I grew up and the unusual path that I, you know, took to get to university. Originally, I kind of imagined myself being a writer, like writing books and opinion articles and straight out of university, I did a, an internship with a think tank in California and kind of built some of those muscles. Um, also did work for an organization called Beyond Zero Emissions. Um, and this was around the time that they developed, uh, you know, like a community, a community um, developed roadmap to get to 100% renewables in a decade. And, you know, naive young Lee Eubank thought, you know, if we just have the plan and we just tell everyone about it, it's going to happen. Like, it's just a good idea. And I think that experience really gave me the... Um, you know the the rude awakening about political dynamics and 
and you know all of those different barriers, uh, the special interest barriers to achieving that change um, in the energy system, let alone across the whole economy. Um, and when I was at university, I did a, I acted as a teacher's assistant or a tutor to Cam Walker, who was the um, long-standing campaigns coordinator at Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Uh, he's been in grassroots campaigns for you know over 30 years now and is a total legend. And um, so I think working with him, you know, maybe that planted a few seeds about, you know, actually, um, you know, working with communities, building community power uh, in the real world and kind of starting from there rather than presuming that good ideas will just happen because they're good ideas. And I guess a few swings and roundabouts, I ended up at Friends of the Earth with a campaigner gig. The original project was... Um, the Victorian government, uh, you know, amended the the um, Environment and Planning Act to effectively, uh, you know, ban wind farms. Like it was just impossible to build a wind farm in the state of Victoria. And the first project was: could we build the the community power needed to have those uh, amendments repealed? And um, you know, it was a multi-year campaign. Um, you know, working with community members uh, in central Victoria, uh, in the Dalesford Hepburn Shire region, working working with uh, wind workers in Portland in manufacturing, working with unions and environment groups, and we kind of built that power needed to achieve the change. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, you know when I started at uni, it was all about learning and then communication, but then I realised that we have to be much more oriented, or at least um, you know, aware of the political political dynamics and the power dynamics needed to to bring about change, whether it's on climate or whether it's on a social justice issue. Amazing, thank you. I really didn't know where that dress story was going for a while, but I loved that. Um, so our next question is that essentially some would argue that there is an inherent tension between activism and the law because the law itself is inherently non-progressive. Has this been all of your experience with the law and advocacy? I might jump in, why not? Um, look, I think with, uh, you know, I guess in the long history of social justice movements and activism, you know, often the law is upholding an injustice. And, um, you know, within that intellectual framework, it's legitimate to, um, to act, uh, you know, against the law or break the law. Um, and, you know, there are dozens of examples, I guess, in the um, environmental arena, often, you know, it, it's legal to destroy, uh, you know, um, places of significant cultural heritage to tra traditional custodians, such as what happened I think it was a year or two ago uh, in the Pilbara where we had Rio Tinto basically, you know, dynamite a, um, a sacred site um, of the traditional custodians out there. In Victoria, we, we see often the um, state subsidised logging agency Vic Forests, um, you know, breaking the law around areas where they're, they're logging and forests that they're decimating and with climate, I guess, you know, the law hasn't caught up with the scale 
and the complexity of the challenge. Um, at Friends of the Earth, we kind of have this motto, um, mobilize, resist, transform. Most of the work that I've done has been in that transform stream. You know, like if there's a law that prohibits wind farms from being built, you can't chain yourself to an invisible wind farm. It doesn't work. So most of the most of the campaigning that I've done has been around, you know, what does good law look like? How do we build the power needed to amend the law or to enact smarter laws um, such as the Strengthened Climate Change Act in 2017? Maybe I can pick up from there, Lee, because I think the law does have the capacity to create positive social change. But as you say, often the law can be in tension with that positive change. Um, I think there are some areas where the law is able to really effectively create a minimum standard, um, a minimum standard of procedural fairness, of access to the courts, for example, in a way that other systems just cannot do. Um, and it doesn't mean that that should necessarily be the bar at which we are pitching, but I think it's an important bar and one that we shouldn't, um, I guess, disregard. And in my area of law at the moment, when it comes to asylum seekers and refugees, the law, I think, really struggles um, in a lot of cases to deal with issues like mandatory detention, um, visa cancellation, because those are all areas where our legislative um, provisions are really contrary to a lot of values that we probably all hold. But one specific area where I think the law has actually come quite a long way um, is around the right to actually access the courts. Uh, so I'm a constitutional lawyer in my background, um, and constitutional law is definitely not um, the strongest vehicle in Australia for social justice, because as you uh, all probably know, it is a constitution that is not very firmly about human rights. It's about the distribution of power between the states and the Commonwealth. But our high court judges on occasion are actually quite good at creating this minimum standard. And um, one way in which they do that is by ensuring that you know the Commonwealth has limited scope to actually remove our right to access the courts. It's kind of a classic Commonwealth strategy. Make sure people can't even go to the courts for that independent assessment, whether it's a refugee or it's um, a climate activist, take away that independent judicial review. Um, but I think there are some constitutional cases that make it quite clear that there's a limit to how far the Commonwealth is allowed to go there because we do have this minimum entrenched standard of, of review by our independent judges. Um, so I think there are you know, mechanisms for creative lawyers to try and work around some of those challenges that Lee spoke about, but obviously in hand with advocacy and activism outside the law um, that really pushes for the reform that we need. I'll just add to that. So I think, I don't know, we, we should look at it as like the law is never going to be perfect, but it's up to us to try and advocate to make it better right there's always going to be something that that's not right right there could be loopholes um or laws that breach international human rights law that are you know implemented in our domestic law but i think the way that we should look at it is not that the law you know isn't achieving what we need it to achieve but if it's not perfect we should work towards advocating to make it better um it's not something that's, you know, cemented. It is something that can be changed and, and amended. So through like activism or like advocacy, that's something that we could all we can all push through with, you know, social justice work to 
to create the changes that are needed. Um, and a lot of the times it, it is hard. Like I'm sure Laura will understand like in the area of law that you're working in, like I just couldn't imagine working in that area because it, you know, the laws are quite frustrating in that, in that area. But like, it's, it's not like that in every area. A lot of the times um, if you raise, or if a group of people raise an issue where there's a loophole um, and it's seen as like, a collective concern with a lot of people and there's a lot of pressure, then um, lawmakers will take steps to amend the law. Um, we had a case um, earlier in the year where we had noticed that there was um, a loophole in the Children's uh, Youth and Families Act 2005. So it's the Victorian um, legislation governing the child protection system basically, right? So um, the law had said that child protection could only get involved where a child was at risk of harm, for example, from their parents, up until um, the child was 17 years old. And the only way that they could continue to be involved um, is if there was an order reach, reaching until their 18th birthday. Um, so what that meant for young people with disabilities um, if they were in their parents' care, there was no other or and the parent was um, you know, causing harm to them. There was no other um, legal avenue to remove them from their parents' care um, because a guardianship order um, could only kick off when the child was 18. So from 17 to 18, if a young person was with a, a parent that was abusing them, they were essentially stuck there for a year. Child protection couldn't get involved. Um, and we raised that issue um, with a lot of our advocacy work. And um, earlier this year, um, the act was amended to ensure that child protection um, could get involved until the young person was had turned 18. So then that risk was mitigated. It doesn't happen all the time. Like a, the, you'll find situations where it will be a really hard push, but it can happen. And I think through um, really good advocacy work, um, there's a way to create that change. Um, I will also just pass over to one other person to answer this question. We have one of the founders of the PLN in the Zoom tonight, and she has said that she has something to say. So, Penelope, would you like to speak your answer? Uh, yeah, I will. Um, yeah, so I was, uh, I was milking my goat this morning, as you do, and I noticed in my uh, Facebook um, stories that um, you were having this event. I was like, oh, it's so awesome to see the PLN still going. So um, I was one of the people who helped found the PLN, and I think it was 2011. So, um, and I was already old when that started, so I'm really old now. Um, but yeah, just um, so awesome that you guys are still going. I wrote your constitution, by the way, um, which you may have changed since I don't know. Um, I went to work um, after I was at Monash. I got into the new lawyer program at um, Victoria Legal Aid, and I was at Legal Aid for a number of years. And one of the things that happened while I was there was a new mental health act was passed. Um, actually, the year that I um, went to Legal Aid, a new mental health act was passed. And so that act was a great improvement on the one that came before that. But the difficulty was actually getting the decision makers in the mental health tribunal to apply the new law because they were so used to the old act and they were so used to the old um, best interest decision making framework, um, which was about people sitting around people that have um, missed, 
who are living with mental illness going, we know what's best for you and you're going to go to hospital or we know what's best for you and you're going to take these drugs. Um, and the new frame, new act was framed to increase um, self-determination in that and to try and reduce uh, people being on orders. But it was really, really tough. So what, um, what Legal Aid did was they formed a dedicated team um, and it was a little bit controversial because it meant that they ended up defunding a, a legal service that was doing that work and taking the whole thing on in-house, which, you know, there was a bit of um, gnashing and wailing about that. But um, I think it was RMIT ended up taking that uh, mental health legal service under their wing, so that did continue, which was good. Um, but anyway, I joined this team and it was really, really interesting because, you know, as a novice lawyer, I was there in these tribunal hearings, which are closed hearings that take place in a psychiatric institution, um, and they're not open to the public, and um, they're not recorded. So, you know, if something dodgy happens, it can be quite hard to prove it later. And I would be advocating against these tribunal members that were very, very set in their ways to say, that's not the law anymore. This is the law now. So um, part of activism and tension with the law is is the lawyers that come forward when a law does change for the better is the lawyers that come forward and actually push for that change to actually be adopted because it can be quite difficult to shift the thinking of of the decision makers so that was a really interesting um thing that that i went through um another thing that i did a bit later was that i i came out to gippsland which is where i live now and i got a job with legal aid um as the um, project officer for the Gippsland Legal Assistance Forum. And that was about coordinating, trying to get the different legal services in Gippsland to, to play nice together, but also to, to um, interact with a whole bunch of other um, other service providing organisations. So, you know, housing providers and food banks and all sorts of different like councils and all that sort of, sort of thing, but also with activist organisations um, and more activist based um, advocacy organisations like GCASA um, and um, the like South Coast Prevention of Men's Violence Against Women and those sorts of coalitions. So that was another just a really interesting thing. It was it was kind of soft law rather than hard law. So I wasn't advocating in front of decision makers. I was just trying to educate um, people who are service provision workers and activists in the community about what the legal services in the community could do for their organisations or for their clients. Um, yeah, so I, I did a lot of mental health work and then I, I did that. And I also did a lot of criminal law as well. Um, and I was, um, the other big legal change that happened when I was practicing with legal aid was the reforms to the Infringements Act. So that was another thing too, like sort of going before magistrates and going, the law now says this. And what that means is that yes, this person has $100,000 worth of fines, but you're going to wipe them because this, you know, this is what we now have. So we had a framework before, but that got made easier and also, um, you know, working with sheriffs and trying to get sheriffs to not clamp people's cars or not take people's stuff and go, well, actually, you know, we can put them into this program now. So, um, yeah, there's there's that sort of, um, it's one thing for the law to change, it's another thing for the people who apply the law to get the message about the change. So that's a really important part of advocacy. Thank you. How fantastic to have someone who actually started the PLN here. I had no idea, so that's amazing. Um, so the next question is, and I know this is a topic we've spoken about a lot in the last two years, but um, 
How do you all feel that the coronavirus pandemic has affected your roles in your workplace and your outlook on social justice issues? I mean, I was mildly um, amused by the fact that suddenly everyone was quoting the Charter of Human Rights. I, I, I don't think the Charter ever got so much use. All of a sudden, there were all these human rights advocates um, coming out coming out from, from the wayside. So I um, thought that was quite amusing. I, I think um, on a less amusing front for, for my work, um, it just created huge barriers to access to justice for a cohort who are already facing, you know, multiple vulnerabilities. Um, just to give you a really, a really simple example. So I had a client um, who was in immigration detention um, on Christmas Island. And so um, phone reception on Christmas Island is horrific. It's really difficult to call your client and get instructions at the best of times. Um, what we would sometimes try to do when we have clients who are in detention is we would try to be able to go and actually sit down with them and get instructions. But one of the first things that happened with, with the pandemic was that detention centers closed to visitors. Um, now, obviously the detention centers are grappling with a public health emergency um, and that had to take precedence. But at the same time, people still need access to, to legal assistance. Um, and one of the quite frustrating quirks in the visa cancellation space is that there are legislative deadlines that cannot be, um, cannot be changed. There's no discretion of the tribunals to change those deadlines. And what happened with this particular client was that he was sitting on Christmas Island in detention and he we were waiting to see if the department was going to revoke his visa cancellation. The department decided that they would hand down this, this decision in the middle of the pandemic when we couldn't access our client. Um, but unfortunately, as soon as that decision was handed down, the clock started ticking. And it meant that if the tribunal didn't make a decision about whether the original department decision was correct within 84 days, then the tribunal was taken to have just accepted the that the department's decision was correct. So you have 84 days that just starts ticking as soon as the department chooses to hand down the decision and they chose to do it in the middle of a pandemic when we couldn't access our clients because they were physically and geographically so far away from us. Um, but also, you know, on a practical level, this client couldn't speak very good English. So we're trying to get mobile phone reception on Christmas Island while also trying to find an interpreter who's available for, you know, long, lengthy, difficult discussions. Um, coupled with the fact that the tribunal just had to proceed. So we had no choice but to go ahead with this hearing, as they called it, with everybody on Zoom. So our client then loses, um, loses the ability to be in directly in front of a member telling their story, explaining the trauma that they've experienced that has come to, to this point of visa cancellation. So um, the pandemic certainly created a lot of really difficult access to justice um, barriers for us that continues actually now because we're finding that now that the courts and tribunals have shifted to online, it's a, it's a bit difficult to get them back to in-person um, and people are, can be very disadvantaged by only being able to tell their story through a screen rather than in-person. Um, thanks heaps for all the work that you do, Laura. That's incredible. Um, hats off to you and Penelope. I love that story of, you know, just meeting the people, meeting the sheriff, just giving them that reality check. You know, often when you're doing this activist work, it is those small little interventions that do, do make a big difference. Um, look, I think similar to Laura's um, case study, um, um, in I think 
God, it was so long ago now. I can't even remember. I think in about 2019, we kicked off this campaign to influence the state government's decision on Victoria's interim emissions reduction targets. And within the Climate Change Act, you know, it kind of sets out the timeline for the government to make those decisions and to publicly release those decisions. Um, so I think it was March, March uh, 2020, and we were on the home stretch of our campaign, and then the pandemic really took off. Um, you know, cabinet decision making had to drop everything and focus on the the public health emergency. Um, so that actually resulted in a delay to the decision on these interim emissions targets for about 18 months. Um, and it was already a long campaign. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that's just one example, like, you know, legally, we might have been able to challenge the government for not meeting that legislated um, deadline. Politically, when there's a global pandemic, is that not or, um, the right thing to do? I don't think that, that it would be. Um, so yeah, we just had to to kind of maintain the maintain the rage, so to speak, and keep on building the campaign. Um, but yeah, it, I think everyone in this Zoom call would have had disruption from the pandemic. Thanks, Lee. That was really good. Um, I'll start off with positives, and then I'll go to the negatives. So positives: um, instead of driving to all these appointments all around Melbourne. Um, everything went online. So like meetings, hearings, everything was online. So I felt like you could achieve more because a lot more could be fitted in your day because of the time that you've saved um, where it would have been spent driving around. But negatives, um, a lot of our clients, because they're from like low socioeconomic backgrounds and they, they do have disabilities, a lot of them didn't have computers, phones, and didn't understand how to use this whole online system. So because of that, we noticed that a lot of clients dropped off um, and they, they just wouldn't engage because they didn't know how to use the technology. Then we also had issues with like consent forms. We had to change all of our consent forms because a lot of clients didn't know how to like sign electronically. So we had to develop new policies and procedures with how to obtain consent because that was causing delays. Um, in people's cases and then just mental health in general like a lot of clients who are like at the final stages of their advocacy cases who are getting like starting to see like positive results um, their mental health would just deteriorate from being you know isolated for so long um, and then we we wouldn't hear from them or when we um, did eventually hear from them we found out that they were in um you know, mental health hospitals getting treatment because they were so unwell. So, yeah, that's all I can say about that. Thank you. And Penelope, would you like to jump in? Yeah, so the impact of the pandemic on the workings of legal aid was massive because the legal aid model is duty lawyer down at the court. Everyone turns up at court with their mangled little bit of paper and the duty lawyer just sorts it out. Um, so a lot of that stuff had to go online and that was, that was really awkward and difficult, but there was a sort of silver lining to it. So, um, for people who were subjected to family violence, the pandemic could be quite bad. And, you know, we were sort of terrified because we weren't hearing from a lot of clients. A lot of people weren't calling up. We didn't know what was going on, but we thought that there was a lot of family violence that was going unreported. 
But for the people who did um, manage to report family violence and get the assistance either of the police or make their own application to the court, um, they were able to get around one of the biggest problems and the biggest flaws in a family violence intervention order system, which is that the applicant, the affected family member, has to go to court and sit in the same foyer as the perpetrator for hours while they're waiting for their matter to get heard. And that can be really, really difficult. And as someone who'd been a, a, a G lawyer kind of doing the shuttle diplomacy between the two parties and going backwards and forwards and people are hiding behind pillars and hiding behind coat machines and outside or whatever, it's really quite shocking. Um, so this sort of early resolution thing started taking place where... Um, the lawyers and the prosecutors who were assisting those people and, you know, the lawyers who were representing um, the, um, the respondents the slash perpetrators could just negotiate it all and then it could just go and be done on the papers and no one had to go to court. And that was really good for a lot of people because it took so much of the stress out of getting the intervention order for that affected family member. Um, so that then became something that turned into... A pilot that was running down at um, at Frankston because there was money made available for specialist family violence courts and trying to get this early resolution happening. I was in La Trobe Valley. I was working for um, Legal Aid as part of the Gippsland Legal Assistance Forum, so I wasn't actually practicing in at this particular point in time. But the difficulty was that even though La Trobe Valley's got the worst family violence in the state, we didn't get the funding because our court's not big enough um, to to have this new pro, pro program. So. We were trying to work, one of my jobs was to try and work with the police to say, can we just kind of do this anyway, even though we're not actually being funded to do it because it's kind of happening anyway, so can we try and incorporate this more into our processes? Um, so that was, that was really interesting. And I, I had sort of limited success, but I think one of the, you know, the, one of the silver linings was it did show that, you know, really Little Trove Valley shouldn't miss out because this stuff doesn't, people don't need to go to court, so we don't actually have to have the state government decide to build us another court building in order to have the benefit of, of what we could do, um, you know, by, by, by dealing with these remotely or by dealing them either with, either by Zoom or just completely by consent orders and then no one has to go to Zoom except for the actual lawyer and prosecutor and the magistrate. So that was, yeah, uh, an interesting development, yeah. Thank you. All right, I might make this the last formal question and then we'll do the Q&A section. But what do you each consider to be the biggest legal challenge facing your respective fields? I feel like something that we are seeing increasingly across legislative schemes, but particularly in migration, is this creeping of executive powers. Um, and by that, I mean increasing discretion given to the minister to make decisions about people's lives that are subject to that minimum standard of, of review, but in a way that is not entirely meaningful because the legislation gives the minister such huge discretion to do as the minister pleases. Um, and I feel like in, in migration in particular, it's a really worrying trend uh, because it means that really important decisions about who gets to remain in Australia and under what conditions and when a person's visa can be cancelled all of those really important decisions are lying with a politician and they are not meaningfully subject to the courts as I think they should be. Um, these are powers that we've had on our, on our books uh, for some time 
um, but I'm certainly feeling like increasingly um, this particular government is invested in creating and expanding those powers, but also the current ministers um, in recent history anyway, have been much more willing to actually utilize those powers. Um, so that's probably my, my biggest concern and challenge that I'm, that I'm seeing at the moment in terms of laws in the migration space. Um, with the, um, the sector that I'm in, so like the disability law space, a lot of young people get rejected um, or are fighting um, cases in relation to the national disability insurance scheme. So with their plans, either they don't get enough money or uh, recently we think maybe because there's an upcoming election, a lot of um, young people's plans have been slashed. So they don't have money effectively to do the things that they, um, you know, that will help them with their disabilities throughout the year. Um, and it can be really, really disabling for a lot of um, young people. Like for example, one young person um, had a disability where she couldn't um, prepare her own meals. Um, and because of that, um, her NDIS plan had um, previously funded her to get um, meals delivered to her, her house, but then something happened in one of her plan review meetings and that funding was cut. So essentially she couldn't eat. So um, our biggest frustration at the moment is that instead of putting in money to help young people who are already like so vulnerable, A, because they're young, B, because they have a disability already, um, try and fight this whole legal system. Um, what happens is, is that um, they either don't get representation because there's not enough legal funding going, you know, um, into legal aid in the disability space, disability law space, or um, to disability advocates. Um, and instead, the government's giving all this money to fund like the NDIA's legal representative legal representatives. So what they have is, you'll get to a meeting and there'll be like this hotshot lawyer or barrister that the government has funded for the NDIA. Um, that costs a lot of money. And then you'll have this other person who either won't have any legal representation at all and has to fight this whole system just to get like basic needs met, uh, which is really sad. Um, so at the moment, there's a lot of ad advocacy um, going around um, trying to get um, funding for advocacy, non-legal um, advocacy and legal advocacy in the um, NDIS space for disabled people. So yeah, I would say that's one of our um, largest barriers at the moment. Uh, look, um, from my end, climate change, uh, you know, slashing emissions, I think there's a lack of kind of accountability measures um, for governments that don't comply uh, and deliver those emissions reductions. So, for example, in the Victorian Climate Act, you know, we have a legislated uh, timeline for decision making, but once you know, the Minister and the Premier and Cabinet sign off and announce interim emissions targets, you know, the Act isn't amended to kind of, um, you know, compel the government to deliver it, uh, if that makes sense. So all we're really left with um, is, you know, how much, uh, you know, you know what, what can we do in the media? What can we do elsewhere to kind of hold the government to account politically, but not necessarily by using the, the law itself? Um, similarly, at the federal level, um, the Scott Morrison government, after many years, has finally made a, a, a commitment to net zero emissions by 2050, which is, 
you know, the bare minimum of what we need to deal with climate change. Um, but very cleverly, you know, it, it's just, it's policy, you know, they haven't legislated that target. So that means that, um, you know, if the school strike for climate movement or if Friends of the Earth wanted to challenge the government about approving a coal power plant tomorrow or a gas power plant, you know, we can't actually use that. You know, we can't bring that into the into the into the space. So, um, yeah, a lot of uh, work is needed to strengthen those bits of legislation that already exist, and to yeah, just legislate some of the basic um, targets that we need to be aiming for. Um, moving on to the Q and A part. I've already started to get a few questions. A lot of them are very similar, so I'm going to do some merging. Um, but the first one is, in 2022, we seem to be living a relentless cycle of bad news, including war, human rights abuses, extreme weather events related to climate change. How do our panellists deal with the mental burden of doing the work they do and the failures and the setbacks? And do you have any advice for young up-and-coming lawyers, I suppose, doing work in these areas? I'm happy to jump in. I guess um, a few simple strategies that we use at Friends of the Earth. Um, action is the antidote to despair. So that's a, that's a quote from, you know, the activists of the 60s and 70s. And um, it, it's 100% correct. Um, I can guarantee it. Um, every Monday night, you know, me and a dozen other community members meet up either in Collingwood or on Zoom, and we just take action towards the outcomes that we want to see in the world. And, um, you know, being together, we find that common cause, you know, we're there supporting each other at, through thick and thin, and we're always showing solidarity with people that are on the front lines, such as people up in the Northern Rivers area um, of New South Wales. At the start of every meeting, we, um, we, we kind of have like a talking circle round robin and we, we put forward, you know, what are the wins of the week? And it could be as big as the state government announcing, you know, an enormous amount of offshore wind coming online, or it could be something that you've done in your own community or in your own family. And, um, you know, it just gives us this positive outlook that even though we are, you know, living through, you know, quite tumultuous times, you know, there is that, that hope and, um, and uh, you know, little small changes towards a better future. And lastly, just a personal thing. Um, this is a little, this is, this is very random and out there, but I'm gonna put it, put it out there anyway. There's a book um, by Alfred Lansing and it's called Endurance. And it's about the, um, the kind of survival story of the Shackleton expedition. So this morning you might've seen the Guardian were reporting that they actually found the vessel um, at the bottom of the ocean in the Weddell Sea um, but it is an amazing story of survival. And, um, you know, if I'm having a bad day, I often just think, well, it's not as bad as being stuck out on the ice in the middle of nowhere back in 1912. Um, and it just helps me put things, things into perspective. I probably have a, a, a slightly less wholesome way to put things in perspective, Lee. Um, sometimes I just need some maps some home and away, some love island. Um, I'm all up in that space, too up in that space. I think that's a, a conversation for um, 
a different panel event, but I, I, I can completely relate to, you know, feeling like the news is overwhelmingly bad at, at the moment. Um, and I, I sometimes I just feel like I need to completely switch off. And for me, that's trashy TV. Um, it's taken a while for me to reconcile, you know, Laura John, the human rights advocate, who goes home and watches Married at First Sight. But um, that's me and that's who I am. And I think it's really important to be able to find your own release. Um, obviously, you know, hear what others are doing and take inspiration from that, but find that thing that works for you that helps you switch off and um, invigorate yourself. And if you're like me, don't investigate too carefully why it is that that's the thing that resets you for the next working day. Um, I would say, try and think of the positives. So to even be in this course, we're privileged, right? Like not everyone can come and have the privilege to study law. Like it's it's a huge, huge thing. So I think I used to always think of that and come from a place of like gratitude, like I'm lucky even to be here, right? Um, in relation to the negativity, stop watching the news or have breaks. Like I, I personally, I'm addicted to this whole Ukraine war. I'm always like searching for updates on what President Zelensky is doing, which is really bad. But I think identify when things are take like having a burden so like if if you're having a bad day just switch off from all that stuff don't answer the call um if you've got like a negative friend that's calling to say all their problems or whatever like you need to take care of yourself first and the reason for that is because at the end of the day if you're going to be advocating for clients who are disadvantaged what you'll notice is every day you'll be hearing these sad stories. So it's so important that you look after yourself first and foremost, because um, there's people that are, you know, that are disadvantaged and that are going to be relying on you for, for assistance. So kind of look at yourself as I've got, to, I'm this super superhero and I've got to like maintain my powers on my battery to help people. Right. So try and think of it like that, but also um, like, in law school, I was always super stressed. I was always having like, what anxiety vitamins can I have next and all this sort of stuff. But I think what's really important is like, don't just eat like bad stuff all the time. Like take care of your health. It's so important. Get like, make sure you're getting enough sleep and exercise, like find that avenue where it's like that stress release. Um, but like when you get into the workforce, you're not gonna be on your own. Um, a lot of the time you'll have a team that is going through the same thing so you can rely on them um, to support you um, with whatever you're going through because quite often you're all going through the same thing. Like our um, advocacy team, we're nicknamed um, the Karens of Brighton because we're always making complaints about people. So we'll have like a meeting and we'll all be like, oh, the government's doing this or this happened to my client. This is so unjust. And then we all start laughing because we're like, I'm going to do a Karen and I'm going to fix this and I'm going to complain to everyone until it's fixed. So, um, yeah, I think have peace in mind that you're you're working in this sector where there's a lot of you that are trying to make a difference. So you're not on your own, but yeah, self-care first, I think. I just wanted to pick up on one thing that you mentioned, Bianca, because I think it's um, it's such good advice to be telling people to limit their consumption of the news because I, I think I definitely become an um, over-consumer. Gosh, there was a while there in the pandemic where I was like sitting down ready for the presses, <laughs> ACT, New South Wales, Victoria, and I was there for all of them. Um, just a really small thing that I have done this year that has made a huge amount of difference 
is I've just moved all of my social media and my news apps off my home screen. I couldn't bring myself to delete all of them, but the few that I thought I should keep, I just don't have them on my home screen. And it's so funny because now when I go to pick up my phone, I don't have as much of a temptation to just be like, I'll just see what's happening. Um, I have to actually meaningfully think, hey, I need to check in on the news. And then I swipe across a couple to get to my news apps. Um, that might be a reflection on my laziness, but I've actually found it to be like a really remarkable change for me just to shift those things um, out of front of center for me every time I check my phone. Love that. I'm also a bit of a married at first sight um, lover, so I relate. Um, another question we did get, what would you say to someone who is passionate about social justice and the quote, worried they won't be able to hack it. When you say hack it, do you mean like tolerate it or like keep going with the job? I think keep going, make a career out of it, I suppose. But any of the above also would work. I think do it. Like just do it. You're, it's so rewarding. Like every, like you'll have, you'll get so much out of it. You'll help so many people and you'll be exposed to all these different like situations that you wouldn't normally be exposed to in your everyday life. Um, and you might not feel like you can handle it now, but eventually you will because you'll build those skills to be able to. And you know what? And if you get to a stage and you're like, oh, nah, actually maybe not, like I'm burning out, that's okay. Like you've got a degree that can get you a job in almost anything right so just you heaps of people they have breaks I do it all the time like that's why I've got all these you know I go from law to advocacy to investigations I'll go back to law like you can have breaks go back and come and you can go back and then come back to the um the profession um the skills aren't going to change but I think if you if it's like you're passionate and you want to get in this field and then you don't you you might live with regret so I think yeah, keep going and you'll build those skills and believe in yourself. Yeah, I think unfortunately, um, most of us are, are going to be working for several decades to come. Uh, so there's plenty of time to, to play the long game, um, as Bianca says. Um, I feel like something that kind of comforts me is to just remind myself, I don't have to be everything to all people all the time. Um, I think it sometimes feels like these issues are intractable and they're protracted and we want to do what we can to help, but sometimes you get bogged down in just how huge the issues are. And I like to try and, and to bring it down to an individual person-to-person -person level. You know, I might not change the entire migration system, but maybe I can help a few people navigate through that system and get to a place of safety. Um, maybe, you know, you're not going to solve uh, or end world poverty, for example. But you might be able to do something really tangible that changes the lives of some people. Maybe the way you change their life is that you expose them to this issue and then they start their own journey. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's kind of helpful to try and obviously we're thinking big picture, but bring that down to, to your micro level. Um, and there's different ways in which you can create change. Uh, and I guess on that as well, I think something I found in my career, you know, I've worked in government, I've worked in NGOs, I've worked with the UN. There are so many different ways in which you can be an advocate and an activist. Um, you don't necessarily need to be on the front line all the time. 
with the posts, with, you know, with your signs protesting to be able to create change. You can create change, as controversial as it might sound, as a government lawyer sitting in Canberra. You can create change in an NGO. Um, so I think, you know, there are ways in which we can be true to our values and activists in a whole range of different careers um, that's going to be sustainable for us and, you know, play that long game, as, as Bianca said. Yeah, look, riffing off um, what Laura said, um, I think, uh, you know, when it comes to longevity or sanity maintenance, um, it's, it is smart to set up some parameters. Um, there's this great quote from um, the environmental poet Gary Snyder, and he says, um, find, your, find your patch on the planet, dig in and start from there. And, you know, when it comes to climate change, like it's a global, it's a global problem, um, you know, fossil fuels and um, extractive processes are at the heart of the global economy. Um, it's quite, you know, it, it is an overwhelming issue and it is a recipe for um, feeling impotent and, um, and just ineffective. Um, you know, but for, for me, you know, Victoria is my patch and I just kind of treat it that way. And, um, you know, we got started working on the um the repeal of these restrictions on wind energy and we won that and then we moved on to the next one which was getting a renewable energy target and then we you know just last week saw the government of victoria announce this enormous rollout of offshore wind and um you know coal is gone like we just we just dealt with you know the biggest chunk of the greenhouse gas pie and now we're looking at what can we do in transport? Um, you know, how do we get gas out of homes? So, you know, I think, yeah, working on that micro level, setting up some smart parameters, you know, you can't carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Can I add to both of those things? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay. So, um, actually three of those things. So um, looking after your mental health is really important and I would really advocate for um, getting some kind of good meditation practice and stick to it. Um, if you can stick to it and keep sticking to it and just make it part of what you always do, that really, really helps. So that, that's one thing. The second thing is, um, yeah, those little things on the cold face, those individual people you help, that's really important. Like as a duty lawyer or as a mental health and disability advocate, like, sure, I'm not you know, out there setting the world on fire and changing all the big injustices of the world. But this person who's in front of me, that I just got out of the psych ward, they think I'm the bomb. You know, they, they love me and they're so happy and they're so free. And I used to get some, you're not allowed to accept presents, but I would sometimes get cards. So I'd always keep the, the thank you cards from the happy clients right there so I could see them. Um, yeah, so... That's another that's another thing to think about. Another thing is communities of practice. So um, if you find a good organisation to work for and you're in a good team, then you can support each other and that's really lovely. Um, I found working at Legal Aid that that was an organisation that actually really did care about the mental health of the lawyers as well. So they did put in a lot, of, they put a lot of things into place to try and compensate for the fact that funding is always getting tighter and tighter and they're always asking more and more and more of their lawyers but they were at least trying to you know give us well-being tools and there was you know free counseling and there was you know various things like that but they, they, i actually found it a really supportive workplace 
and also um, for women, uh, public service employers like Legal Aid um, can be really good because if you're going to have a family and you actually need to leave at 3.30 because you've got school pickup, you need an employer that is going to give a shit about that and not go, no, if you're not here until 11 o'clock, you're not really trying. So, um, yeah, pick a good employer. That's that's another thing. Um, but speaking to Lee and the find your patch and work on your patch, I actually got to a point myself, and partly this was because I I had a very, very big personal crisis. I, I lost like half my family. I died. So I had a bit of a breakdown. And after that, I found I... I couldn't take the stress. So I went, okay, well, I'm now going to be an organic market gardener in the Latrobe Valley. <laughs> so, you know, I can, I can see the plume from, um, from Yalon W from my house, um, but I am putting carbon in the soil and growing veggies. And when someone rang me up today to say, hey, I don't want to drive to the supermarket. Can I get onions from you? I'm like, you can. And they popped around and they, they bought 40 onions, which was, they needed for some reason. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm not saying I'll never work in the law again, but um, but it is something you can you can come and go, and you can find your niche, and um, and there's when it comes to public interest law or activist law, there are just so many amazing people doing it that you'll meet and get to work with. Um, everyone that I worked with at Legal Aid, everyone I worked with at Gippsland Legal Systems Forum, they were just all incredible people with amazing passion and awesome minds so you know find your tribe i'd say yeah. amazing i'm going to pass it over to emily who i believe has a question if you would like to thanks nicole and thanks everyone so far for all of your contributions um i just started working at an immigration law firm and i'm kind of getting exposed to how um personal your interactions with your clients can be and I was going to ask how when you do have this privilege of hearing such personal stories how do you um, kind of leave those chapters when a case is closed or you know you guys were mentioning that during COVID clients dropped off how do you kind of um, manage your personal emotions or attachments to your clients um, I'll jump in. It's hard because sometimes you'll have clients for months and months and months and you do develop a close relationship. Um, but I think just accepting that it's part of the job, you're only meant to be in their lives for a certain amount of time. And when your work is done, it's really important that you, you close that door because if you don't, you're not going to be able to help the next person. But you always think of them and... Um, it, it's it's hard. It's not something that's easy. Um, and sometimes you'll you'll have people who have difficulty closing that door because you've been such a um, a staple person in their lives, and they'll call in it every now and again. But yeah, that will eventually drop off because you can't help everyone. So I think um, yeah, just being grateful that you got to meet those people um, and that they sh they felt comfortable enough to share their experiences with you, but yeah, it's a it's one of the hard things I would say. I don't know if there's a an easy answer to it. Yeah, it's so difficult, um, and I don't think there are any you know clear cut strategies or ways that you can do it. But I think it's really important from the outset of your legal career that you are trying to create those um, those boundaries. 
because as Bianca said, we're there as their lawyers. We're, we're not there to be a social worker or a psychologist or a friend even. We're there to be their lawyer. And I think sometimes um, to be a good lawyer means that you do have to draw those lines and those boundaries so that you can give people the correct um, and the accurate legal advice so that they can make important decisions about their lives. Um, that's not to say that there aren't those cases that get under your skin. I still have clients from years ago who cross my mind every once in a while. Um, but I, I feel like in order for me to be able to do justice to my current clients, I need to clear that space because um, I'm not going to be an effective lawyer if I am carrying with me every person whose case I've lost along the way. Um, so it's an ongoing struggle and um, one, in, one that we talk about a lot at the ASRC. Uh, and I think being able to debrief with your colleagues is a really good way to um, share a little bit of that personal responsibility, because um, I think for a lot of us, that's where it comes from. We develop a sense of personal responsibility for this person's life, not just their legal matters, but their whole life. So it is, um, it lightens the load a little bit to be able to share with colleagues. Um, and yeah, and I guess as Penelope has mentioned, you know, there's a great network of public interest lawyers who are all going through similar things. So having that tribe, I found to be really helpful. I found in my practice that um, there were always so many more clients coming in the door. Like I, you know, I was like, great, awesome, glad I could do something for you. Who's next? What's the next file? So, um, yeah, I think it depends a little bit on what area of law you're working in. So in migration, you tend to have really long-running matters, whereas what I was doing was I was often meeting people on a Thursday, representing them on the Friday, and then I might never see them again. Or some people, and I did have some files that would run for some months, but um, but yeah, there's there's always someone else who needs you. So I, I found that I, I would just go, yeah, you, and then sort of move on to the next because there was always this big queue of people that needed help. I might open the floor now if anyone else has some questions that they haven't sent through or want to raise. I have a question. If I can jump in. Um, this one's probably more so directed at Lee um, as someone who's acting more within kind of the political advocacy side of justice as opposed to more of the legal. Um, have you found there's any kind of any big strengths or freedoms that you've found pushing for change at more of the grassroots level as opposed to working within the legal system and being tied to some of those more restrictive laws and stuff that I'm, I'm sure um, Bianca and Laura have both found to be so annoying within within their systems that they're working within the law. Yeah, look, I love I love being an outsider in the political system. Um, you know, I, I know people that are, you know, party members of various parties and people that are in departments and so on and so forth. But um, I think there's a, a creativity and a um, yeah, just like a a power that that you can have on the outside that you know I don't think I could necessarily have inside the various systems. Um, and you know, like it sounds really simple, the recipe for success, but it's you know like um, building building community power, um, you know, establishing. You know, in the in the public um, debate, that there's a problem, and then you know, putting forward solutions. It's really dynamic and creative, and um, I guess being 
a non-partisan player in the political arena. You know, you can kind of look at, you know, look at political dynamics and where momentum is going and, you know, kind of um, harness that momentum. Um, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully that answers it somewhat. I'm, I'm a big fan of the outsider kind of build the power and make the change. Incredible, thank you. I've got a, I've got a question for Bianca. Um, I'm just wondering, are you doing any work with the Disability Resources Centre? Um, so Friends of the Earth, we've kind of done a little bit of support work with them around uh, barriers to access to the tram network in particular. But I'm just wondering if any of the young people you're working with have, um, have come, you know, experienced that as a barrier and if you're, if you're familiar with the work of the DRC. I, I haven't worked with them, but um, that issue that you've raised with the trams is a huge issue. Um, a lot of people have raised that in submissions to the Disability Royal Commission in terms of like access. Um, and they've raised it as an issue in relation to the government's um, negligence in providing adequate access to, you know, disabled young people, they can't get on transport. Um, and then that leaves them in situations where they're at risk because you know, they could be left at pla like in places where it's dark or, or whatever, or they can't get to work. So then it, you know, it causes issues in terms of their, um, their employment and then their ability to, um, to feed themselves and pay their bills and that sort of thing. So, and I remember way back when um, I was volunteering at VROC, that was something that was also raised in their policy team. They were doing like, um, like consultations with the community. And that was something that was raised way back then. So the fact that they haven't fixed that issue still is so disappointing. But um, yeah, it sounds really interesting. And it's really good to hear that you're working on that issue with them. I've got a question for you all. Where where do you think you're all headed? Like, do you think more social justice or do you think you're going to get sucked into the corporate vacuum? When you pitch it like that. <laughs> Iva? Hold out. Um, I'm definitely really interested in going into the social justice um, aspect. I think I entered law school not even sure whether I wanted to go into law, um, but just like knowing that I was really deeply interested in like environmental issues and I think over the course of my degree and I'm uh, majoring in human rights um, in my kind of arts side of the of the degree as well that's just broadened my interest even in even further into some of the more kind of social justice aspects of that and the interconnection as well between environmental and social justice and all of those all of those issues in there um, which has been, yeah, really, really fantastic to have kind of been able to um, get that insight. But um, yes, definitely, definitely looking to get into the social justice aspect. It's, it's just more of a getting, getting there. <laughs> That's like end goal. Um, I might offer like a very different perspective. Um, obviously, I still have a few years left of my degree, so I don't really know what I'm going to be doing. But I... I kind of have an idea of going into the commercial area or into like big firms, getting those skills and then like fixing it from the inside out um, and hopefully like using the resources of 
larger firms and like government entities and then going on and being able to take those skills to places that don't say have the resources to train up people with legal skills um I don't know I think social justice is something you can still achieve even if you might start off working in the corporate world I think I'm not sure about anyone else but there still is that fear I guess that you're going to move into these social justice pathways and I guess they're just a little bit um like less tangible where you're going to go with it I, I don't know though um yeah I know when I was working at the Human Rights Commission this is the Australian Human Rights Commission in Sydney um interestingly a lot of the lawyers in their legal team were ex-corporate lawyers from top tier firms so if you always wanted to jump ship, you could later down the track because you're right, you do develop those skills um, and they're good skills to have. Um, I was just going to say, maybe with another question to the panel, um, heading on hopefully an optimistic note, um, like with the impending election coming up, um, how do each of you think that this shift in the political sphere could impact your um, line of work, um, hopefully for the better, um, and maybe is there um, a way that you're engaging in um, activism yourselves like to get your um, the issues that you care about sort of on the front line of um, yeah the election and um, hopefully changing um, these areas for the better. I might jump in. Um... Look, as I mentioned before, like we don't necessarily have uh, legal, you know, um, ways of holding governments to account on climate in Australia. So we're kind of left with what can we do in the community realm and in the media. So um, coming up in a couple of weeks time, we're doing a community action in Box Hill. So I guess it's, you know, probably a short bus trip from, um, from the Clayton campus and we'd love people to come along. But um, I guess in, in terms of, you know, grassroots activism, we're always trying to, um, to get creative and, you know, to have the action be the message and the message the action. So what we've done, we've, we've booked out a, um, an athletics track with a 100 metre sprint line. And we're gonna be kind of physically marking where the political parties stand in the race to zero emissions. And um, so, you know, the Morrison government with, with its lackluster target of only a 26% reduction this decade, they'll be at the 26 metre mark and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, I mean, for this action to have effect, we want to have a big crowd at the 100 metre mark to show that that's where the community would like to see politicians end up. Um, in terms of this election, it, it's pretty evident that... Um, the Scott Morrison government is on the nose, uh, you know, looking at the response of his performance up in the Northern Rivers uh, in relation to the devastating floods. I think people are pretty upset with him and it's kind of rekindling the memories of his failure during the Black Summer bushfires. Um, you know, from a climate point of view, you know, having a change of government would, uh, you know, would see that 2050 target legislated. Um, you know, the Albanese opposition has put some big money on the table to drive the energy transition. Um, but, you know, Australian voters, they can just 
they can surprise you. So, um, you know, I'm not going to, I wouldn't put my money on, on any particular outcome, but, but um, yeah, it will, it will actually be quite um, helpful for the, the climate change cause. Bianca speaking. Laura, I don't know if you heard, but I was at a rally on Saturday, a refugee rally, and an MP from the Labor Party was there, and they had confirmed that if Labor won the election, they would be releasing all the refugees from the Park Hotel. Yeah, incredible news, and like so long awaited. <laughs> who was who was that? Was that Jed Carney or someone? Or to be honest, I can't remember who he was. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Very keen to find out. I um, I love a, I love an election year. I can feel it in the air. Um, I look. I'm I am optimistic that um, this is an election in which people have um have a real choice. In that, I think there are core differences between the various political parties, and I think we as Australians have an opportunity to pave the way for you know, a society that is going to be more just and more fair. Um, so in the, in the migration space, um, ASRC is doing a lot of advocacy with all sides of, um, of, of politics, because I think um, it might be a close one. Uh, like Lee, I'm not gonna put any money on it, but I think it might be a close one. Uh, so we'll be doing things publicly around, um, in particular, as Bianca mentioned, the refugees who are still in Park Hotel, but also all of those asylum seekers who are stuck in the community with really limited support waiting for their protection visas to be processed because they're being punished because they arrived here by boat a decade ago. And there's a large cohort who are, who are in that group. Um, we're also doing quite a lot of, I guess, quiet advocacy might be a way to say it because um, the Labor Party has a tendency to get a little bit frightened around a federal election when it comes to policies on, on, on refugees and migration because it gets swept into these ridiculous but persuasive arguments around border protection and national security. Um, so I think, you know, we're quite aware of that, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't still make some inroads quietly behind closed doors so that if there is, if there is a change in government, we can actually start to see changes in policy and laws that are going to impact on people's lives. Um, I think everyone in our sector is at the point where it doesn't need to be a fanfare. It doesn't need to be super public. It just needs to be done. Um, so we're kind of exploring all of those different political routes. And yeah, I'm, as I said, I love a federal election. I'm, I will be moving my news apps back to the home screen when the campaign starts in earnest. <laughs> Can I just hop in with a, just a quick bit of um, recommendation for people? I don't, I don't know if mine are still does this but when I was there you could do this sort of double unit called professional practice and you got to go and um, and work at the Monash Oakley Legal Service. Um, I would really really highly recommend that if you want to find out if social justice work is for you um, because you get to run files with real clients and help them and you might even get to go to court and you might even get to advocate for them depending on what the situation is. Um, I just I, I learned more in that double unit than everything else I did at uni um, and it was brilliant so I'd recommend that. Thank you. Um, I reckon that we start to wrap it up. I think people are starting to leave in drips and jabs anyways. Um, but thank you all so much for coming and